you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, God's Word in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And just for a moment, if you would just think about these, these kind of warm days. And uh, yesterday for Trent's graduation, uh, I have to tell you that COVID has made those graduations nice and short, which is fantastic. Um, and, uh, and so uh, one of the things, though, is if you've ever kind of had an opportunity to sit on these new turf fields, um, grass actually takes in warmth and cools you down. Um, sitting on a turf field is like sitting on a tire in the middle of the summer, right? And it is, um, it's, it's hot and it's warm and you're, it, it feels like you're frying from the bottom up. It's, it's very bizarre. Um, and one of the things that I realized when I got out there, actually, as we pulled up, was that there wasn't any water, uh, that I had brought this kind of sparkling water with me. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, it's going to get hot out here real quick. And sure enough, it got hot out of here real quick, right? And you think about those things in your life where those instances where you've been, where ever have those, those times where all you can think about, you stop actually paying attention to what's happening and you just think about, man, I'm thirsty. I am so thirsty. And I don't really care whatever else is happening. I'm so thirsty. And if you're like me, you've even tried to drum up your own spit to see if that will help the, uh, quench the thirst. And it's never fully satisfying. And yesterday, that was a bit of how it was as we got out there was just kind of this, like, oh no, like this is what it's going to be like. And we're out here. And so as a as a family, none of us brought water, and what we had was a, a little can, and we're talking about, can we go to the water fountain and fill up this, this can of sparkling water, and fill it up with water and drink it, and then go back and sit down? And part of it was just looking for some sort of refreshment in the heat that existed. I remember as a kid driving to Sonora, and it was back in the days where seatbelt laws weren't around. Uh, there was no thought of seatbelt laws. And um, I remember riding <clears throat> in the back of this Toyota Celica hatchback. And <clears throat> I thought it was the greatest thing in the world that you could lie down, look out the back window, <clears throat> and do the entire drive while you were lying down looking at the back window. What happened was that same experience, right, where the sun started cooking you. You realize real quickly that it's a large window. You're lying down and the sun is beating through the window. And what seemed so cool at the beginning was not so cool by the time you were an hour and a half in. And the only thing that was around that was, as we were traveling with family, we were going up to a cabin, was kind of warm soda that was all packed away. But it looked refreshing because it was liquid. And so I remember asking my parents, can I have one of these sodas? And they're like, yes, go ahead and have one of these sodas, not telling them what was really happening, that I was super thirsty, my throat was super dry. And you drink a hot soda on a hot day, and it's 10 times worse, right? It's just, it's, it just burns going down. There's nothing refreshing about it. The truth is, is that things that look refreshing can often not be refreshing. And out of 1 Corinthians 10 this morning, what we're going to look at together this morning as we deal both with graduation Sunday and and a message that I hope encourages our graduates, but I hope it encourages each of us. That specifically, that God has given us one to go to for refreshment. And it is to satisfy. It is to deal with our thirst. And it is to provide ultimate refreshment that's lasting and enduring. And so let's go ahead and read this passage this morning out of 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. So let's stand as we read that passage together. And this is the way it begins. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this passage this morning. We thank You for the power that's displayed through Jesus. The words, God, of the song that we just declared to you that life was breathed back into you, overcoming death. We thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that the work is finished in the redemption of man. God, may we be a people who repent and believe on you. And may we be a people who continue to be a repenting and believing people. Lord God, I pray that your spirit would move powerfully amongst our hearts this morning. Father, that it would be your word that comes forth through me. God, that each of us would humbly hear the words that are spoken. And God, May we be encouraged in areas of our life where we need rebuking. May we be rebuked. May we be corrected. And may we be instructed. So may your word speak deeply within our hearts this morning. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. In verse 4, of chapter 10 it says and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ this morning we're looking at the idea that spiritual refreshment and victory can only be found in faithfully going to Christ our rock spiritual refreshment and victory can only be found in faithfully going to Christ, our rock. Refreshment and victory are found in Christ. Refreshment and victory are found in Christ. Now, very few of us would describe a rock as refreshing. Right? When you see a rock, you think desert, mountain, not much life. Like, truthfully, the only thing that hides underneath a rock it's stuff that's not good, right? Bugs and snakes. Snakes, which I despise, and bugs, which, depending on the bug, I despise, right? We don't think of rocks as life-giving. We, we think of them as something that you either try to hide under or get away from. And yet, Scripture here actually has a unique purpose for Christ being called the rock. So as verse 1 begins, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. So Paul is specifically writing this passage as a warning to those who have repented and believed on Christ. To his followers. It's a warning to those who have professed faith in Christ. And it's a challenge for those who haven't yet professed faith in Christ. He's giving an example of what faith should look like and how it should be revealed in our lives. And he compares one walk with God to the freeing of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. So 
those stuck in the bondage of sin, that's Egypt. Those who believe in Christ but are stuck in the wilderness due to a lack of faith and obedience, that's the wilderness. And those who are living in Christ and Christ living through them, well, that's Canaan or the promised land. And so he takes them back to the Old Testament Exodus to teach the church of Corinth about righteousness and about Christ's righteousness and refreshment in their life. In verse 1, Paul continues. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He continues in verse 2, excuse me, and all were baptized into Moses into the cloud and all passed through the sea. You see, in order to get out of captivity, the Israelites identified with Moses as their appointed leader from God to remove the Israelites from slavery. They were willing to trust him to lead because they could not get out of Egypt on their own. That's what it's meant by that they were, they were baptized into Moses. Was Moses was their leader, the one that they saw appointed by God to lead them out of the promised land to take them where they wouldn't have gone otherwise. They saw no way out of the captivity in Egypt. And in the, minute, in, in the minutes of the storm that were taking place there in Egypt, they readily saw that what they no longer wanted would be, be to be bombarded by this, this slavery, this brutality. And so they were willing to follow Moses as the man appointed by God. In, in the same way, this points to our need for faith in Christ to remove us from the bondage of sin. This is what Paul is doing. He's tying back and he's saying, listen, the Israelites' lives were to be an example for us to follow. Not to follow in righteousness, but to see the consequence of walking in disobedience. In Romans 5, 6-9, we're told, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good reason one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Jesus is the only answer to our captivity, our enslavement to sin. Jesus is the one who has appointed and been appointed for our salvation. He's the one that goes to the Lord on our behalf. And for all who repent and believe on Christ, salvation is granted. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Salvation comes through repentance and belief. Repentance of sin, belief in Christ. Belief that He died and that He rose again. And in that belief, we are confessing Christ as the Lord of our life. So Jesus, in essence, for the believer, what Paul is doing is saying, listen, the Israelites followed Moses as their appointed leader. He was the only one to get them out of captivity. But we have a more perfect leader. We have a more perfect one in Jesus. And we are called to follow the one that God has granted to us, which is Jesus. And no longer does He reside outside of us, but rather through His Spirit resides inside of us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, this brings us to verse 3, which says, And all ate the same spiritual food. Well, this spiritual food was manna that was mentioned in Exodus 16.4. And the manna really represents the sustenance we receive when we're sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment that we put our faith in Christ. It points to the illumination of God's Word and the conviction of sin that we receive regarding sin in our lives. 
And verse 4 goes on to say that all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So in the wilderness, this manna was given to the Israelites to sustain them. Now, in Exodus 17.6, we're shown that this rock quenched the thirst of the people and provided refreshment. However, the people actually don't go back to the rock. The rock is provided for their thirst, to, to quench their thirst, but they don't go back to it. And so is it any wonder that in verse 5, Paul says, Nevertheless, with both of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So what was the reason that God's not pleased? Well, the truth is, they weren't turning in the right direction. They weren't turning to Christ in faith for their refreshment. They weren't turning to the promised Messiah to hold them, to strengthen them, to refresh them. See, God didn't intend for them to live in the wilderness for 40 years. And He certainly didn't intend for them to be sustained by manna, to make that a steady diet. And yet, that's what happened. The manna wasn't meant to provide fulfillment and refreshment. It was only to be a source of sustenance. Something that sustained them as they moved from captivity in the wilderness into the promised land that would continue to sustain. But it was never to be a steady diet. So God's plan was for His people to experience the rest and refreshment and purpose of living in Canaan. But unfortunately, their disobedience kept them in the wilderness for 40 years. If you'll recall, God had instructed the Israelites to go into a land of which the Israelites looked at and saw a bunch of giants. Now this is the same God that parted the Red Sea before them, that as they left Egypt and saw the Egyptian army coming in on them, God parted the Red Sea, they went through the Red Sea, and then God closed the sea upon those who were chasing them. This is the same God that removed them from captivity after years of being brutally treated by the Egyptians. But all of a sudden, their disbelief in this same God who could protect them from the Egyptian army that was hated the Israelites, that was trailing the Israelites, that wanted them dead. Think about that for a moment. If the Egyptians had caught them, it wasn't just that the Israelites were getting out of captivity, but it was that the Egyptians were attempting to destroy a nation. A nation that God had established a people that were to declare His glory to the world, and yet God continued to protect His remnant, His people. And yet the Israelites disobey. They look at the giants and think, not today. Not today, God. There's got to be another way. And when they realize their mistake, what happens? They attempt to go in the land without the strength of the Lord and they're slaughtered and the curse that is left is the fact that they wander then for 40 years in the wilderness and the very generation that came out of Egypt is not the generation that enters the promised land but it is their children as people who repent and believe on Christ we can often make the same choice and miss Christ's ultimate blessing in our life. As a redeemed people, we can live with little hope, little joy, little sacrifice, and little purpose. And yet God has called His church to reflect His glory. We were designed for Canaan, not the wilderness. We were to be a people who were living in the fulfillment of the promise, not in the listlessness of the wilderness. God has called us and created us to live in His blessing, the promises of His Word, 
and the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. And too often, as the followers of Christ, we get shifted, we get moved off, and the fulfillment that God desires for us in the promised land is traded for the listlessness of the wilderness. Knowing the truth, even confessing the truth, but walking in disobedience with little faith and little trust that God will do and be who He claims. Ephesians 3, 20-21 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Israel was a nation that God established so that the other nations might see the glory of God. When Israel walked in disobedience, the gospel, part of God's sovereign plan, was extended to Gentiles. And no longer was it the nation that proclaimed His glory to the world, but it became the church, those who were followers of Christ, who were to display the glory of God. It's His people. And our call as believers is to display the glory of God in all that we do. But that means that the glory of God is actually witnessed in our joy. It's witnessed in our peace. It's witnessed in our spiritual refreshment. It's witnessed in our sacrifice. It's witnessed in our purpose. question for us today is what do you want the church to be known for? And what does God want the church to be known for? Are they the same thing? When God takes a sinner like me or like you and He moves in our hearts and He does things that we never thought possible and He changes us into people who love one another. And He changes in our hearts where our love for the Lord is actually being marked by our submission to Christ and our willingness to come under His authority and our desire to trust that what God says about His Word is actually true. That His way is best. Do we really believe that? See, Christ's church is to reveal the glory of God to all the nations. And Paul is trying to warn us of the consequences of living apart from this promise and apart from the rock and provide us with the means to live with the freshness and purpose that God really desires. He's suggesting that if only the people would have gone to the rock consistently and relied on Him to quench their thirst, they would have experienced His peace and His refreshment and His strength, and His courage, and His knowledge. Ian Thomas, in his book, The Saving Life of Christ, puts it this way. He says, If the Christian life has become dull and boring to you, it is simply because you will not go in to possess what God has given you in Jesus Christ. You've never tasted the thrill and adventure of being totally abandoned to the One who will lead you through in glory and in victory. That is significant because unless you go on into the fullness of what Christ is in you, you will only be able to celebrate your conversion with such meager, poverty-stricken resources as you brought with you out of your unregenerate condition. In other words, the energy of the flesh. What he's saying here is that many of us will confess Christ as Lord of our life but we will then continue to live in our own strength, in our own power, rather than in His strength and His power. It means that we begin to disbelieve things about God. When God says in His Word that we are to, to give cheerfully, and we go, God, it doesn't feel so cheerful. Do you know what I could do with this, Lord? Or when God says, hey, 
Sex is to be saved for marriage. But I say, well, what does it matter anyway? We're going to get married soon. Or when God says, consider it joy, my brethren, during these trials, because God is perfecting us so that we're lacking in nothing. Do I begrudge the trials that enter my life or do I actually respond with joy knowing that God is using this trial to shape me and make him more like my, himself? What do we actually believe about God's word? Because what we believe about God's word actually comes out in our life. And so Paul warns against and provides a couple examples of sin which prevent Christ's refreshment and blessing in our lives. He wants us to see a picture of what happened with the Israelites. There were things that they weren't believing, and they were walking in sin. And this sin prevented them from experiencing the refreshment and blessing that Christ provides. So the first sin that we see here is the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, idolatry is anything that takes our worship. Anything that takes our worship. In fact, Peter Keefe puts it this way. He says, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, it's idolatry. It's the worship of anything other than God. The opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. What are the things that take our attention? What are the things that take our affections? Better yet, what do we run to when we're sad, depressed, stressed? What do we run to that is easy? Now Jesus says that his yoke is easy. But do we believe that? Do we believe it? When we put other things before the altar of something or someone else, we have created an idol. When we run to those things rather than to God, we create an idol. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When we have idols at work in our life, we will never experience the peace that God intended, and we will never experience the victory that God intended. They're in the way. You can't serve two masters. We have generation right now as a culture, whether it's two years of age all the way up to 98 years of age. And it is easy to run to things that are not Christ. It is easy to justify sin. And yet what Paul's saying here is, don't be stuck in the wilderness. You weren't created for the wilderness. You were created for Canaan. You were created for the promised land. You were created for the promises of God. And the things that hinder the promises of God are sin. And so this first sin of idolatry points out the fact that God is displeased. I mean, think about that for a minute. How do we justify our pleasing before God? Well, I'm knowledgeable in the Scriptures. Is God pleased? Think about these things for a second. Because I read my Bible every day. Is God pleased? Because I pray every day. Is God pleased? Now, it might be that He is. But it might be that He's not. Because the reality that he's putting out here is this. Is that we don't get the freedom to compartmentalize our lives. 
We don't get the freedom to say, hey, I'm great over here, but over here I really stink. Now we can recognize that, and it's important we deal with that in our own life, that we recognize that sometimes sin has mastery over here, and we have righteousness in this area. But we need to realize that the only way to deal with that sin over here is to actually confess it regularly, put it before Christ, and trust in His victory. But let's not whitewash it. Let's not only look at the things in our area that we're growing in, but let's actually deal with the areas that are actually preventing us from having genuine intimacy with Christ. The second thing that he addresses here is sexual immorality. He says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Look at the language. Do not be. We must not. Paul's not providing some counsel like you may want to take this seriously. He's saying, you must not. We must not. Do not. He's saying that when these things are rampant in our lives, when they're unrepentant in our life, when they're mastering our life, we're not experiencing the refreshment and victory of the rock. And therefore, we are not experiencing the blessing of his promises but rather we are living listlessly in the wilderness the third thing that he speaks of here is testing the lord we must not put christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents psalm 78 18 through 22 says they tested god in their heart by demanding the food they craved they spoke against god saying can god spread a table in the wilderness he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. What is testing God? It's trying God's patience. It's confusing his mercy for approval of attitudes or actions or of your heart. It's saying, well, because I must not be experiencing the consequence right now of it, it must be okay. Or God doesn't care that much. God's saying, listen, when sin is exposed in your life, we're to deal with it. We're not to put God's mercy to the test. It's easy, isn't it? One of the things that we don't get the freedom to do is to try to understand our sin and then deal with our sin. Our culture puts a premium on trying to understand things that work within our life. I, I want to encourage us as the body of Christ, that's a lie. God says deal with sin, and as we deal with sin, then He will bring understanding. He will bring the things needed in our own hearts to live victoriously with Him. It's not the other way around. Don't use processing as an excuse for sin. Don't be deceived. Because the truth is, we are wonderfully clever when we try to, to stay in our sin. Are we not? We can think of all the reasons today is the wrong day. We can think of all the reasons why somebody else is a reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. And we can think of all the reasons why we'll never have victory. And so, God must not mean today, and His mercy allows me to move to tomorrow. And yet God has brought it to your attention today, therefore God has called you to deal with it today. And then the fourth thing we see is grumbling. Grumbling. Verse 10 says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 14, 2 through 4, we're told of this. And it says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will come pray. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Things got tough. Grumbling set in. You ever realize that grumbling's a sin? That God actually says that the critical spirit, that the grumbling that's taking place is actually a sin, that we're not finding satisfaction in Christ and where He's put us? In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And then he goes on and he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. We can be sure that when we are not a people who move into thanksgiving, when we are people who find a lack of contentment in things, sin is close behind and sin has already been activated. Discontentment is one of the leading causes of sin in our life because we fail to trust where God has put us and where God has placed us and we fail to trust that God is working on our behalf even when we can't see it. I want to encourage you, if you're a grumbler, to move towards thanksgiving. I say that for me too. Because I know my heart. My heart is one where I can pick apart things and look at things and find things to do better. And what God desires for me is to actually be grateful and thankful for His work consistently and always and often. A discontented heart will never find spiritual refreshment. A discontented heart will never find spiritual refreshment. It can't. Because the only thing that it's looking at is the circumstances, not at the Savior. And the refreshment comes from the rock. The victory comes from the rock, who is Jesus Christ. For our graduates, I would encourage you to live a life that's focused and purposed on a heart of thanksgiving towards Jesus. You will find that in thanksgiving, you are able to, fought, to, 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 to deal with the discontentment that may rise up in the area of idolatry, sexual immorality, or even putting God to the test. You will find that if you have contentment in Jesus, those other things will become less powerful in your life. I wish I had learned that at 18. I wish that I understood what it was at 18 to find contentment solely in Christ, not in the things of this world. That should be each of our prayer. That our contentment be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You see, the Greek word literally means to express one's discontent. And it's a complaining, a grumbling, and having a critical spirit. Ultimately, it leads to blame shifting, gossip, and embellishment. We move to a place where we don't own our sin, but we make excuses for it. So we try hard to diminish these sins in our lives, but we never manage to actually gain true victory. And there's a sincere desire that's met with consistent failure. And victory in Christ is not achieved, but rather it is received. It begins with genuine confession and then complete submission and dependence upon Him. It begins with this. It begins with believing that God and God's Word is true and best for me. Sin that is getting a hold of our life is most often 
tied to this discontentment, but this discontentment is feeding a lie that God's way is not the best way. And that God's way has not made the best way. Ian Thomas says, Now the devil loves to invert truth and turn it into a lie. And probably what he's been saying to you is this, Try not to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and then you will walk in the Spirit, as though the latter were a reward for the former. We walk in the Spirit first. And then God begins to deal with these other things. In my own life, that had to take shape as I began to see the resurrection power of Jesus. As I began to believe in the resurrection power of Jesus, that I was no longer a slave to sin, but I was a slave to righteousness. And so in verse 11, he says, Now these things happen to them as an example but they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Now, wherever we see Jesus or wherever we see the Word of God repeat itself, we want to take note. And in both verse 6 and verse 11, he uses this phrase that this was written for our example. Think about this. It's one of the dangers that we have when we don't actually take time to to spend time in the Old Testament. He's actually saying that the, the lives of the Israelites was to be an example for those believers. That it was to be a place of hope for the believer. That we were to look upon the Israelites' experience and go, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want to be stuck in the wilderness circling for 40 years. And I can see areas in my own life where I have been stuck for longer periods than I would ever desire. And God just coming back and saying, yep, you circled the mountain once more again here, buddy. You're back at the same spot. You're confronted with the same issue. Are you going to deal with it? We need to be ready to deal with this. And He gives us a way. So how do we stand in Christ that we don't fall and actually experience His victory? Well, the first thing He says here is, therefore, let anyone who thinks that He stands take heed lest he fall. Be humbly watchful. The first thing is to be humbly watchful. We need not think too highly of ourselves. We need to not think that the other parts of our lives are great. We need to deal with this area of our life. 1 Peter 5, 6-8 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy that's looking to devour your soul. Recognize it. Like, i got to be honest with you. We're walking around with COVID and masks and all these things. We're aware of the threat, but as followers of Christ, we seldom think of the threat that's actually against our flesh and against our soul. It, it, we may walk into a room and we got masks on or whatever and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. But the equivalent of that is you got somebody in the room who has COVID and they got a bad case of it And all they want to do is find you and cough all over you and spit on you and give it to you the best way they can. That's the devil. That's what he's looking to do in your spiritual life. He's prowling around looking for somebody to devour, to spit on him, to throw it on him, to get on him. And we're not often prepared for that. We need to be humbly watchful. We need to see that the schemes of the enemy are creative. We need to see the lies that we're embracing Fulfillment in sin is not fulfillment. It's passion. And it's passion rooted in pleasure, not righteousness. David Guzik points out, temptation works like rocks in a harbor. When the tide is low, everybody sees the danger and avoids it. But Satan's strategy in temptation is to raise the tide and to cover over the dangers of temptation then he likes to crash you upon the covered rocks. Second thing that he says here is that no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. Ever had a sin in your life where you say, I just feel powerless to the sin? I don't think I'm ever going to have victory over the sin in my life. The truth is, when we begin to believe that way, we're believing that our sin is unique that it has unique power 
and it is uniquely not under the grace of God. Even In our minds, we may say, yeah, I get that it's under the grace of God, but in my life, I just don't feel that. The truth is, we need to know that others have struggled with and overcome the same sin. Others have struggled with and overcome the same sin. Your sin is not unique. Your sin is not unique. It's not as powerful as you believe it to be. It has been overcome, and it's not unique. One commentator put it this way, he said, Never perhaps has there been a day when it was more difficult to live a clean life than at this present time. Appeals to the flesh abound on every hand. Indecency is brazenly flaunted before our eyes. The vileness in our current magazines know no bounds. If it be true that as goes the home, so goes the nation, then there is grave cause for concern as to the future of our beloved country and the steadily mounting divorce rate and the trail of broken homes from one end of the land to the other. Sensual sins of all kinds are frightfully prevalent in all states of American society. The truth is, if we're looking for hope in our society, in our culture, it's not going to be there. It can only be found in Christ. And that same truth tells us that our sin is not unique and others have been overcome it in Christ. So then finally, the first is to be humbly watchful. The second is to know that others have struggled with it and overcome the same sin and that your sin is not unique to you. Finally, trust God's faithfulness and sufficiency of grace to grant victory through faith in Christ. Trust God's faithfulness and sufficiency of grace to grant victory through faith in Christ. What does that mean? It means that I believe the very things that God has said. In my life, one of the areas that God was working on most I found that there was great disbelief. That I, I lived intellectually and mentally with the understanding that God could bring victory over sin, but I lived actually in powerlessness, defeated by that sin in my life. And I believed that I was forgiven for that sin, but I don't think I ever fully believed that the same power that saved me was the same power that could give me victory over that sin, that I was no longer a dead person, but I was an alive person through the resurrection. Heath Lambert points out, the Bible teaches that in addition to confessing sin and seeking God's forgiveness, you need to pursue God's powerful, transforming grace by believing the good news and walking in faith and obedience to the gospel. God's grace pardons you and forgives your sin, and God's grace empowers you to live differently and be obedient to Him. He continues, If you want to use Jesus as transforming grace, you have to do something so easy that many people find impossible. You have to believe it. Transforming grace works when you believe that Jesus gives it to you. The moment you believe in Jesus' grace to change you, you are changing. The more you continue to believe it, the more you will continue to change. Do you believe that you are no longer buried in sin? But do you believe that you are now righteous in Christ, been resurrected with Him, and the power that caused you to sin in the past has now been overcome by the power of righteousness and life in Jesus? And that I am no longer that slave to sin, but I am now a slave to righteousness. That what God is actually saying here is that it actually takes greater faith to walk in open and unrepentant sin or in battling sin than it does to walk in righteousness. What do I mean by that? It means that I'm actually believing more the lie than I am believing the truth in Him. It means that I actually believe that, yes, God, You will change my heart and give me new desires. And so that's the question for us this morning. What are you believing in? Do you ever take time to reflect and say, I'm struggling with this sin? Jesus said that it's actually been buried with him. And now, God, I need to trust in your promise by submitting to you that if I flee from this sin, or as verse 14 says, flee from all idolatry, as I flee from my sin 
and I believe that you will give me a new heart with new desires. And as I walk in that submission, that God begins to change and move my heart. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference of believing in all the aspects of Jesus, not just some of the aspects of his victory? It's one of the dangers that occurs, right? One of the biggest issues that today that we do is we, we want tools to actually walk in righteousness, and we need tools. The challenge, though, is this. When you live by the tools, your walk with the Lord is only as refreshing and fulfilling as the tools are. And there's nothing worse than trying to live by the tools. And you can do a pretty good job of it, can't you? You've got Jesus, you know that Jesus is saved, you try putting the tools in place, but the tools consistently bring failure, do they not? You find yourself struggling to really understand what it means to walk in joy. Because heart's not being transformed or changed. See, part of it is I have to replace that lie. And when Jesus says here that we actually are designed for the promised land, I begin to see that no longer is the, the, the passion and the, the desire of the flesh, whether it's money or whether it's sex or whether it's lying and affirmation of people, whatever it may be, regardless of what it is, we have to ask ourselves, what truth are we believing? Are we believing the truth of Christ? Or are we being, believing the lies of the flesh? My hope for us this morning is that in the simplicity of this, that we would be a watchful people in humility. That we would know that our sin is not unique to us and we're not the worst case that God has ever seen or that man has ever experienced. If you hear the words come out of your mouth, you don't understand how powerful the sin is in my life. You just don't get it. Recognize that's pride. Recognize that it's pride. Your sin is no worse than anybody else's, and the power of your sin is no more powerful than anybody else's. In fact, God says that for the believer, we all have the same power over sin, which is the Holy Spirit at work within us. And then finally, do you trust what God says? Do you believe His promises? Do you believe the promises that His way is the best way? But even more importantly, do you believe that His power is available to you in bringing resurrection to your life, not death to your life? And are you willing to submit to that, trusting that He will change and renew your heart? Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for the goodness of your word, thank you for challenging us to be a people who are faithful, to be a people who live by the strength of your grace, not by the futility of our flesh. God, this morning, may we be refreshed, knowing that what you desire for us is your refreshment and your victory. And God, may we remove those sins in our life that are preventing us from experiencing the true joy of living for you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.